Let's take our Bibles. Let's go to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. When I was growing up, I don't know about you, but one of the things we used to do on Saturday morning was watch all those scary films. Those ones that when we were grade school age, we'd see the black and white images of the different creatures from the lagoons and the, and the different characters that would, you know, the ghoulish type things. And then we got a little bit older, and I remember watching for the first time one of those space alien movies. And that was the, um, bo- the Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Now, just kind of, it just freaked me out. And every time I saw any type of husk for corn or anything, I thought something was growing inside for about the next few months. So I got myself this this whole genre in my mind of those scary movies that bother me, especially the alien ones. Well, we're coming to a passage of scripture that there's a guy who people would have said, you know, at times, this guy is an alien. He is just out of his mind. He is strange. And it's not a space creature that's the problem. The problem in this text, it is a in this atmosphere, in this world, it's a demon that has possessed the man. And the story is very, very well known, but let me read most of it, and then we're going to just go through and get some different uh, thoughts out of the text. If, we're, if you're following, follow along. Mark chapter 5, starting with verse 1. They came over unto the other side of the sea, that is the Sea of Galilee, unto the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, that's Jesus, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not even with chains, because he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus, afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, you son of God, of the most high God? I adjure you by thee, by I adjure thee by God that you torment me not. And Jesus said unto him, Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he, the spirits, answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought, that is the the demons, besought Jesus much that Jesus would not send them away out of the country. Now there was nearby unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought Jesus, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out, entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. There were about 2,000 of the pigs. And they were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what was done. That is, the people out of the countryside and city come to see what was done. And when they come to Jesus and see him that had been possessed with the devil and had the legion of the demons sitting and clothing now in his right mind, they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And the people began to pray Jesus to depart out of their coast. And when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil asked Jesus that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but said unto him, Go home to your friends, tell them how great things the Lord has done for you, and has had compassion on you. 
and the de formerly demon-possessed man departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him and all the men did marvel. Now there's a lot of different information out of this text. There's a lot of different facts and there's a lot of different tidbits that we could draw from the text. But to get our, our best handle on it, let's just answer a few questions and let's divert towards one direction in particular. In your notes we ask this question, where did this take place? We are, Jesus is traveling that evening from one side of the Sea of Galilee. Let's make the pulpit the side of the Sea of Galilee. Up in this corner would be Capernaum. That's where he has had his headquarters working in that Galilean region over here. And now he's going to go over to this region on the other side, which is often called Decapolis, the area of the Gadarenes, the area that if you look on a map, you might see the city of Gadaria uh, or Gassara or something of that type of a spelling. And there's going to be one a little bit farther north or one a little bit farther farther south. And they're unsure exactly which one <clears throat> is the one in reference here. But we know that Gadara does show up several times in the gospel. It seems to be a popular city. And the site that they think is this ancient Gadara that's about in this area of the Sea of Galilee, uh, kind of kitty corner across from uh, Capernaum, that area there's this large 40-50 foot slope right next to the Sea of Galilee that's all very abrupt where somebody or something could jump off and land into the sea. And about two miles away, within, within a mile and a half to two miles, is also an ancient, ancient cemetery plot. And so many of them think that that's the region that this miracle took place where Jesus meets up with this man. Now, putting this timing and the setting together, Jesus is in his middle of his ministry. Uh, it's in that halfway point. If you remember what's happened a previous chapter or two, Jesus has had busy, 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 very busy days. And the the people who had come up and investigated him, the religious leaders from down in Jerusalem, had decided that they were opposed to Jesus. He wasn't the Messiah. They were going to, uh, they were going to lay claim that he was of, the, of his father, the devil, working in cohort with demons themselves. And Jesus rebuffs that, and he rebukes that and says, how is a house going to be standing if it's divided against itself? It makes no sense. But they were insistent. And then that's when Jesus pronounces that they have committed the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. And so at that point in Jesus' ministry, he has been really focusing, doing a lot of miracles, a lot of preaching in this whole region over here in Galilee. But what's going to happen is after that point, he's going to focus for the next year on getting his disciples frequently apart from the crowds. Take them away where he can talk with them. And there's going to come a time in the next couple months, he's going to end up over here in Decapolis and in this region on the eastern side of the, of the Sea of Galilee and he's going to spend an extended period of time over here ministering, being away from the Jewish populace. This region was a mixture of Jew and Gentile. That's why it's called the Ten Cities because some were Gentile, some were Jew and so he went, came over to this region but he's not going to be able to stay. In fact, as the story goes on, they want him to get out of there right away. Well, a few months later, he's going to come back and he'll be able to stay. He's going to be able to minister and find more private time. But at the moment that this miracle takes place, he is very extremely busy. In fact, if you remember what happened in chapter 4, the last few verses, when he has been ministering a very busy day over here on this side, near to Galilee, near to Capernaum, he is late at night, he wants to 
to get away from all the crowds. So he gets into a boat and he tells his disciples, let's go to the other side. And even when they sail across the sea, it says according to the other gospels that a whole group of ships followed him. The crowds kept on after him. There was, there was just no break. And remember what happens when they go across. <clears throat> I should explain. In, in ancient times, they didn't go across. They would hug the shoreline. So if they're, if they're going towards here to Gadara, they're going to keep semi-close to the shoreline. And, uh, and remember what happened on that night that they travel? Jesus goes to sleep, but the rest of the disciples in the boat, they don't sleep because... It's that, here, that huge storm that blows them further out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And they're terrified. They think he, they're going to die. They wake him up. They ask him if he doesn't care. And that's when Jesus stands up and he just speaks and everything becomes instantly calm. Well, that's happened during the night. So when Jesus comes early in the morning, what, as soon as they, it says immediately when he gets out of the boat, there's no time to basically get to your land legs. Right away this demonically... Uh, possessed man comes to see Jesus. There's no time for breakfast. There's no time for any type of break whatsoever. Soon as they land, this demon man is there. And the demon man approaches Jesus, and then this whole episode starts. And so in this setting, we could talk a lot about a variety of topics. In fact, why don't we do this right now? Flip your sheet over and look on the back side. If we were to just, from this text alone, get, do, a, do a study on demonology, if we were to study the spirit world, World. There's a number of facts you can pull out of this text about demons and about the spirit world that are very, very clear. They are very interesting, um, and they provide us some biblical theology about what to deal and, and how to recognize and to handle that, that force that we would call demonic forces. Let's just make some really quick, simple statements about them from this one text. We would say that demons are real and dangerous. That's an obvious, that they are real and they are extremely dangerous. These, these aren't make-believes. Jesus is having a conversation with demonic forces, and Jesus is accepting them as real beings, telling them to come on out, telling them and ask them, what is your name? And so it's very clear that Jesus, who is not a lunatic, he believes that these demons are real. He believes that they're dangerous. Demons are highly intelligent thinking beings, highly intelligent thinking beings as seen by their ability to communicate, as seen by their ability to communicate through other people, to take control, to just use this man as a ventriloquist would use some type of a dummy. Number three, demons are spiritual beings with the ability to inhabit physical beings. Spiritual beings that have the ability to inhabit physical beings. Now, I started off talking about aliens from another planet. So the demons aren't aliens from another planet. Demons are, are spirit beings from this realm, this planet, this part of creation, and they have the ability at times to inhabit different physical beings, and in this case, the man. Demons are powerful beings as seen by the fact that they gave this man superhuman strength. This man was able to tear apart the chains tear apart the handcuffs, if you would, that were upon him. And so these demons were able to enhance the physical abilities of the person that they were possessing. Let's make a fifth statement. They were exceedingly corrupt, very corrupt beings. We see that corruption in their, in their lack of morality. They have this man totally, well, in fact, it doesn't say it in the early part, but it says in the latter part that when they come to see him in verse uh, 17, is it, or... 
uh, verse 15, excuse me, that when they approach and they see this man, one of, the th- one of the characteristic traits that they weren't expecting is this man is sitting there, but he's not just sitting in his right mind. What else do they describe about this man? He's clothed, which implies clearly what? That he is an, he's an ancient streaker. Okay, in the tombs, this man is very immoral. Now I understand again that you say, "Well, wait a minute." In ancient world, I've seen a lot of statues from Rome and Greece where they were unclothed. A lot of the athletes and things of that sort—that's true in that portion of the world. But where the where we're talking about in the Middle East section, there was a high, high value on modesty. The people living in this region, they were not typically they, even if they were athletes, they would not do what the Romans would do in Rome. They they would not go around and exercise in their, in their birthday wear like the Greeks would do. These people were going to have a much higher modesty and there was going to be a great value on, on being clothed and pro- propriety in that way. And they had, a t- they had a real view of looking down on somebody like the Romans and the Greeks who would display a lot of the body. And so this idea of this man is unclothed in this culture, in this setting at that time, was a real statement about a lack of morality. In fact, this, uh, this demon that we're talking about, exceeding corrupt, he's trying to harm the man. He's trying to hurt other people. In Matthew chapter 8, I think it's verse 28 of Matthew 8, the parallel passage, it says that as people walked by, this demonically uh, possessed man would jump out and attack people. And so (coughs) these demons that were within this man, they were extremely corrupt. Let's make a sixth statement. The demons have the ability to make someone inflict serious personal injuries upon themselves and others. So that's a fact that in this case they were harming the man, but they were also getting him to harm other people as well. Number six. Or uh, let's do number seven. Demons seek to bring about death to God's creative beings. The part that I don't understand in this whole text is send us out of these, this man and send us into the pigs. And he puts him, this legion of spirit beings are allowed to go into the 2,000 swine and immediately they go over a cliff and kill themselves. And my, in my mind, it's just like I don't understand. Why would the demons destroy a host vessel? Why would they cause harm to them? Well, it gives us an indication of the nature of these demons, how destructive they are, which is no surprise to us. Do you remember when Jesus is commenting upon Satan and his hordes? He says to the Jews, he says, Your father, the devil, he was a blank from the beginning. Anybody remember what word he uses? Not a liar, but worse than that. A murderer, a murderer from the very beginning. Elsewhere he calls him the liar. But in the passage that I'm quoting in John chapter 8, he calls him a murderer. And then as well in John 10, he makes the comment that he says, the thief always comes to destroy. He's talking about the good shepherd and, the, and how there are false shepherds. And he makes the, the analogy or the comparison that Jesus is coming to save. But here in this case, these demons are crying, trying to destroy destroy the man, destroy the pigs. And so it's a very, very uh, characteristic of the demonic hordes that they are destructive beings. Number eight, demons may resist or refuse to willingly leave a host. However, demons do acknowledge the great authority of Jesus Christ. 
When they come running, they say to him right away, what do we have to do with you, Jesus, thou son of God? And they, they say that, you know, torment me not. Now they're indicating and they're, they're giving us the idea that they understand what's going to happen in the future. That Jesus, as the judge, is going to torment them by putting them into the lake of fire. Putting them into Hades. And so they're challenging. It's not time yet. It's, we're not supposed to be cast into Hades at this point. We're not supposed to be tormented in that regard. They acknowledge his authority. They acknowledge his power over them. We'll go on to number 10. Demons admit that they will be, they will be accountable to Jesus one day. That he will judge them. That he is going to condemn them and they will stay condemned. Demons believe in God, future judgment, getting God's permission, the deity of Christ. That's displayed by their conversation. Even though they want to be rebellious, they want to be opposed to Christ, they are still submissive to his rule and his authority. So if demons hesitate or refuse to do what Jesus says, they will surely resist us even more. If they are going to hesitate, they're going to, they're going to come up with an alternative plan. To come up with something that is contrary to what Jesus tells them, you know, when he says, leave this man, and they, they come up with the alternative, send us into the swine. If they're going to resist Jesus, then we know that we're going to have opposition from them as well. Demons must eventually comply with Jesus' orders because of you, who he is. They have to do what he says. Unlike the exorcist of his day, Jesus did not rely on rituals or incantations to manipulate the demons, such as you read and study about some of those who were the exorcists of Bible days. They would put fluids in a cup and they'd put it in front of the head, the face, the mouth of the individual who possessed and then they would say certain incantations and the cup was supposed to spill over indicating the demon came out. And so as part of this process, well Jesus doesn't do this process with any herbs or with any kind of special prayers. What does Jesus use to tell those demons to leave and they have to leave? He's just his words. The power of Jesus' words. So in this text we have again that implication that in Jesus' name, the power of Christ, that in his person, how phenomenal it is. So you're reading this story. You live in first century first century uh, Rome, you're getting this story and you're impressed by power. You're impressed by the Caesars. You're impressed by the generals, <coughs> the rulers, and all the power they have. And you start reading this story about a man named Jesus in Galilee who demonstrates power beyond anything that you've ever heard before. He can calm the storms. He can, by the word of his mouth, by the word of his mouth, he's able to deal with demons. So this is a very impressive story. So you and I have to stop and say, okay, exactly what is the author trying to get at? What is the author trying to tell us? Well, obviously he's trying to tell us how great Jesus is. But can I point out one characteristic of Jesus about greatness that ought to challenge you and I? Let me, let me break it down this way. I'm going to do it in a one, two, three outline. I want you to see, first of all, the example Jesus gave in ministering to the ungodly. The example that he provides. How Jesus is going to minister to an ungodly individual in, in his greatness, but what a great example to you and me. Now I'm looking and thinking and talking about this man, and we're going to say, okay, Jesus is going to minister to this man, this demon-possessed individual who's crazy, who is all these other things. But let's highlight this first of all. Jesus takes the time to minister to this ungodly man when it is inconvenient. It is inconvenient for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has just had an extremely busy day. Jesus Christ has had an extremely busy night. 
broken rest, not getting full sleep, his own disciples questioning him. Jesus Christ is, is trying to get away from the crowds. He, it's, it's inconvenient. Have you ever had a moment that somebody calls you and says, hey, I need a favor, and they couldn't have picked the worst timing? And it's very inconvenient. It's very difficult. It's just like you had different plans. You had, a, you had other things in your mind. And you have to say yes or no. And it's, a, it's somebody that you should help out. And you go through a real internal struggle. Jesus demonstrates something that is quite um, remarkable. Quite exemplary. He, he is approached by this man in the middle of all of what's going on, and he's, gonna, he's got 12 other people he's, he came to minister to. And again, I say that tongue-in-cheek. Jesus knew where he was going and what he was getting into. But he's got all this other obligations, and he takes time to minister when it is inconvenient, when it is something that wasn't in his plans, that wasn't in his schedule, that wasn't something that he had arranged, he had put onto his daily agenda. Something else that strikes me. Jesus ministers to an ungodly man even though the man was intimidating. The timing was inconvenient. The man was intimidating. Now think with me about this guy. This man scared people. In fact, the reputation I mentioned already from Matthew, the reputation is people wouldn't even go by that area. They would give a wide berth where this man was because he would jump out and attack him. I mean, seriously, think this through. A man who is living in the tombs, who is howling, who is running around in the nude, who is breaking chains, would you want to go near him? Yes, no. What would you tell your kids to do? Stay far away from that person. You, you just, this guy is intimidating. Now think of, have you, have you ever run into somebody, a coworker, a neighbor, who intimidated you just be, by their coarseness, by their roughness, by their demeanor? I mean, this man's demeanor, think about it. When, they, when Jesus comes, the demons run up and they're just right in his face. They're, you know, Jesus, you know, what do you have to do with us? They're, they're coarse, they're crude. And some of you have had that for a some family workers, some neighbors, they're intimidating. They're individuals that you would just as soon kind of avoid. I remember working during my seminary days in one of the businesses where Deb and I worked together in this small company, and there was another man that I had to share a large office with, and that man was, to me, an intimidating character. He could cuss, he could just, he could you know, put people in their place by his rudeness, by his gruffness. He was just he thought he owned the company, and he didn't. But he walked around as if he did. And he would just treat everybody in a very condescending way. And nobody, but nobody in the business would speak up to him. Even those who were in charge, the different foremen, the different managers, and the, the, one of the owner's sons, who was to be the future CEO of the company, he was intimidated by this guy. This guy would, would say something to him and call him Junior and Sonny in the conversation. And you would see that future owner of the company kind of wilt by this man's demeanor. He was an intimidating fellow. Well, this demon is intimidating. And Jesus isn't at all put off by this. Jesus isn't at all hesitant. Good example of saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, even an intimidating person. By the way, can I throw something out to you? In the Talmud, which is Jewish writings of that time, they describe what is considered insanity or an insane person. And they gave four different descriptions of somebody is really, really 
um, way out there, somebody is really dangerous, somebody who is, who is demon-possessed or totally insane, there's four characteristics of those people. One of the characteristics that the Talmud mentioned was this, that if these people would walk about at night, if they were the type of people, now some of you are going to say, oh, I must be insane. We're talking about some people, an individual that there was no rest. They were just a, a person that was carrying on, going on, keeping on late, late at night. We have that description of this man. That it, he is just totally there in the tombs and it's just an ongoing characteristic of him. Another characteristic was this. If somebody ever spent a night at a tomb or a cemetery that that individual was probably insane, that according to the Talmud. Jewish writings, number three, they said if these people would tear their clothes off. Okay, we're not talking about mourning. We're talking about somebody, for other reasons, would just rip their clothes off. They're probably insane. They're a difficult person to deal with. And then the fourth sign was this. They would destroy whatever was given to them. They would ruin the property. They would try to seek to harm other people or themselves. Well, by every characteristic of the Talmud, every one of those four major descriptions of somebody that was exceedingly dangerous, that's, that was totally mentally unstable, well, this guy was it. And we understand why. He's demon-possessed. And so he was intimidating to even the scholars of the day, the people of the day, the community as a whole wanted nothing to do with this guy. They put him out into the wilderness and chained him up. He was, he was a frightful character, and yet Jesus ministers to him. If we want to go a little bit further, Jesus ministers to this ungodly man, even though it's inconvenient, even though the man is intimidating, even though the man is immoral. We know that about the man's morality. It was very low in the fact that he is one who is without clothing. And, and again, think of it. If he is in a Jewish community, if he is a Jewish man by, by nationality, which we don't know for sure, but if in that, some of that region there was a blend of Jews and Gentiles, if he's Jewish, where he is living makes him unclean. Because remember, he's spending his time where? In the tombs, around the dead bodies. Remember, that would make you unclean for any kind of a worship. So this man would be considered immoral. This man would also, if we would put it down in another word, he would be insignificant. It's inconvenient. The man is, is intimidating. The man is immoral. And the man could be classified as an insignificant individual. He's got not much to offer. There's no family. There's nobody pleading his case. He's, an, he's a forgotten individual. In fact, the community would just as soon forget about him. They wish he would go howl in the backwoods and just be by himself. He doesn't have anything to offer to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and yet Jesus takes the opportunity to go and minister to him. Now, I said it already that Jesus is leaving here Capernaum. He's going to go around to this other side to Gadara. And he's going to get there, and he wants to take the disciples aside. But tongue-in-cheek, I made comment that Jesus knew what he was getting into. Jesus knows that there's going to be somebody there. And so Jesus, in his foreknowledge, Jesus, in his wisdom, he goes and takes this trip, all of a whole night trip, to minister to one person. And that's all that's going to respond at this moment. Just this one man. But this one man was significant enough in the mind of Jesus Christ that he would minister to him. This one man who was intimidating, this one man who was immoral, Jesus knew that he needed Christ. And Jesus took the time to minister to him. What a challenge for you and me. To stop and to say, hey, wait a minute. We should realize the significance of other people. 
We should realize what God can do with people who are intimidating and immoral and individuals that even when it's inconvenient for us, we should be open to be ministering to individuals. Let's take it to the second point then. With that in mind, let's talk about the energy Jesus had when he was ministering to the ungodly man. The energy that he had. You look at the story and you say, okay, Jesus was able to work with him. And you see the two different factors about Jesus' power. Jesus had that power over the demons themselves. That even though they were powerful, they were able to make this man do things that he wouldn't normally do, trying to harm himself, trying to harm other people. That even though they were great in number, there's a legion of them, enough that they were able to take over 2,000 pigs and destroy those pigs. And Jesus tells them they have to leave. And they don't want to. It's not time for judgment. They're trying to resist. They're trying to stall. But Jesus says, you've got to leave. Go over to the swine. You suggest the swine, fine. Go over to the swine. And Jesus has power over them to stop to force them out, to tell them they must leave this man who bears the image of God. They need to leave. They need to go into those those animals. The power of Jesus Christ over the demons, the power of Jesus Christ shown by the changes he brings in the man. That's, That's for fun. Not for fun, but that's for Bible study. On this side... What was the man, you know the before and after pictures you see of people who do weight loss or bodybuilding and they have all these, let's do the before and after. Before and after. What great changes were brought into this man? How would you describe the man before? Wild? Violent? Other words? What's that? Crude? I put down the word frenetic. That he's just all over the place. Loud? Yes, no. Abrasive? Does he display self-control? No. Okay. Dangerous? Now, you get it real simple. What changes? What great changes took place? Look down to verse 15. What's obvious some of the changes that take place? Okay, he's calm. What's that? He's clothed. He's in his right mind, so he's showing stability. He's not doing crazy stuff anymore. Anything else? Pardon me? Oh, they're afraid of him. Yeah, right. That's the irony of this whole text, is it not? The people are afraid of him at, when he's demon possessed, and they're still afraid of him afterwards. That's the irony of the text. But the man himself, anything else that you want to say? Okay, great change brought by Jesus Christ. Peace, calmness, sitting, attentive to Christ. Great change. Before, Jesus, what do we have to do with you? What do we have to do with you? Jesus kind of get away from us, and what does he want to do afterwards? He wants to stay with Jesus. Can't I stay with you? Can't I travel with you? I mean, tremendous change takes place. Who brought about the change? It wasn't some type of you know, self-improvement course. It wasn't something radical in the diet that, that the disciples had in their knapsacks. It was the power of Jesus Christ. 
The power of Christ to change an individual. When ministering to an individual, how Jesus has the ability to change the man inside and outside. Now think this through. Jesus is going to tell these disciples in just a matter of months, he's going to say, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel unto all creatures. And lo, all power is given unto me. And he says, and lo, I am with you always. That, that statement that he makes. They have seen his power. They have understood how he can change individuals. That this isn't a, a futile endeavor to go out and to share the word of God, to go out and talk to people. They are not going to be intimidated by the demonic forces that they're going to run into in the book of Acts and elsewhere. They're going to realize that they have behind them the support of Jesus Christ, his energy. They have the example of him ministering to individuals. They have the assurance of his same type of energy available as they minister. Let's make the third observation out of this text as we bring it all together. Let's talk about the encouragement. The encouragement Jesus gave to minister to the ungodly. In this text, the encouragement isn't so much focused on the man himself. That, okay, let's, let's go and minister disciples. Let's go and, and let's see if we can reach this demon, demonically possessed person. The disciples don't know that. But the encouragement is seen by what Jesus says to the man who has just been demon freed. The encouragement is amazing. Now, set the scene. The townspeople, as Lou just referred to, when the townspeople come back, and they have heard that this man who had been demon-possessed, he's free to the demons. That the demons had been told to go into the swine, or allowed to go into the swine. And the swine all ran over the cliff, and they killed 2,000 of them. And when the people come, the people look, and they see the man, and they see Jesus. And the comment is, they're afraid. They're afraid of the whole situation. Now, let's back up. There are some authors who attack Jesus in this text. There are some modern-day writers that, that you can pick out and you can look, and they'll say, Jesus in this story did something that is totally incomprehensible. Jesus had no respect for other people's property. Where did they get that conclusion? Why are they, They're criticizing him because what did he do? Okay, because the destruction of 2,000 swine. And so some of the modern-day authors criticize Jesus for allowing destruction of 2,000 pigs. By the way, they sound very similar to the people of the village nearby in this story. That they're more concerned about property than they are people. Okay, first, if you're going to respond to that, your first response has got to be, well, Jesus didn't destroy the animals. Right? I mean, seriously, Jesus didn't destroy the animals. Who did? The demons. The demons destroyed the animals. So let's get, let's, if we're going to put blame where blame needs to be put, put the blame where it's appropriate. It wasn't Christ that destroyed the animals. Jesus was delivering the man. He allowed the demons to do what they wanted to do, to go into these other, other physical beings and go into those animals, and therefore... Now, question is, why did Jesus do that? Well, we know that Judgment Day isn't here yet, but these demons had requested that they would go into those, into those animals. Why? I don't know. But if this is a Jewish community, what is the obvious fact about these swine? This is, this is a subtle rebuke, if you would. They, they shouldn't have had them, Right? 
If this is a Jewish community, if these, and again, we don't know, we don't know for sure if everyone here was Jewish because there was a blending of people in this region. But if there was Jews involved, this really was a subtle attack on them dealing with pigs anyway because pigs were considered to Jewish society as an unclean animal. So why that is the case that they have them, it could be that minor rebuke. What is evident is this. <coughs> Jesus clearly, clearly reveals the dangerous nature of those spirits that were in that man. He, he unveils, he reveals to everyone how, how absolutely corrupt and destructive those demons were. If anybody had any inkling that maybe they weren't that powerful, maybe that they weren't that dangerous, and it's just that this man is acting up, Jesus let their real nature be revealed. That they destroyed all these different animals as well. And so Jesus, in this whole portrayal, which I, 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 I don't fathom writers, I don't fathom critics attacking Jesus because the swine died, because what is more valuable? That which is in the image of God or an animal. Now, I, I'm, I'm not against animals, but animals are not made in the image of God. Who is? Mankind. And Jesus is rescuing an individual, a soul, an individual who has eternal value. And so Jesus is ministering, but the people's response is the most amazing. The people who, the city people who come by, the community people, their reaction reveals their ungodliness. Their ungodliness seen by the fact that there is no expression of being excited that this man has been delivered. Pure lack of, lack of enthusiasm, lack of concern for this man's well-being. To, to see this man changed and say, we are glad that this man is his right mind. There was none of that. None of that at all. They were more concerned about, uh oh, wait a minute, this Jesus person here, he's upset our economy, or this Jesus person is a threat to us. There's just no concern whatsoever. You, you would think, you would think, just common sense, parents, parents who have been fearful for their kids to walk this way, you know, people who have been themselves afraid of this guy, lunatic, that would come out and attack them if they got too close. You would think out of pure common sense, people would say, we're thankful the nuisance is taken care of. There was none of that. There's one of two things that got these people to react to say, Jesus, out of here. Jesus, out of here. We don't want you here, Jesus. Leave, 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 leave. It was one of two things. One, they were afraid of Jesus and his power and what he might ask of or do to them. Maybe they were afraid. Well, if he, if he destroyed the pigs and we were doing things wrong, maybe we're next. Maybe they, they're afraid that Jesus would, would all of a sudden demand something of them. Somebody with this great power. Truly, people, people who have great ability, you know, great power usually corrupts. And Jesus is going to ask us to do something we don't want. Or, or they were more bothered by the lack of monetary loss. Is it possible that people in a world would be more concerned about monetary loss than other people? Can you imagine living in a world like that? 
In this case, if that's, if that's what happens, these individuals, they either whether it's we don't want you, Jesus, here because we don't trust you, because we think you're going to do something to us, we think you're going to demand of us, or we don't like what you did to our economics, either way, they revealed an ungodly heart. They revealed an uncharitable heart. They revealed a very selfish heart, a self-ruling heart, a community as a whole. And then the comment that is the most amazing is Jesus encouraging someone to minister to those people. They don't want Jesus around, but Jesus says to the man who said, please, let me go with you in verse 18. Jesus said, go home to your friends, tell them how great things the Lord hath done for you and has had compassion on you. And the man departs. And he goes through the entire region. Jesus orders the former maniac of Gadara, the man now in his right mind, the man who has just been redeemed by Christ. He orders him, go minister. Go minister to other individuals. Think this through. He wanted him to go minister amongst those who knew him and that he knew as well. People who knew him well, who knew his background, who knew his story. Go talk to them. He wanted, Jesus wanted him to go, even though he was young in the faith. Jesus is saying, go minister. Here's encouragement. Go minister to people who know you and you, whom you know as well. And I want you to do it. Though you, you are young in the faith, you only met me this day, go and share what Christ has done. Even though he's supposed to go and minister to those ungodly, even though some of them have already rejected Christ. They have already made a public statement, we want you out of here, but I want you to go back and minister to them. I want you to go and share with them some more. Even though some of them did not treat him well in the past. You go minister to the people, the same people who didn't do you well in the past. They chained you up. They left you out at night. They told their kids to stay away from you. They warned people about you. They treated you bad, but you go and minister to them. You go minister to these people who have rejected Christ, who have not done you well, and the way you minister to them is just share your personal testimony. You tell them what I have done for you. You tell them what you have learned from me. And if you do that, I can use you. I can use you in a great way. You jump a couple chapters over, and you will see that the next time Jesus comes into the Decapolis region, he has to leave now. The crowds have asked him to go. He goes back to the other side. But in a matter of weeks, he will come back to this region. And when he comes back to this region, it says that the people will, will crowd to him with all of their sick, their infirmed, and all those who are demon-possessed. They will come flocking to him, asking him to work in their midst. What or who made a difference? I suggest to you that this maniac of Gadara had a good ministry. That he shared, that he laid a foundation so that when Jesus came back weeks later, there was now receptive hearts. Who is supposed to minister to the people that you know? Should be you. You and me going to the people that we know well, people who know us, sharing what Christ has done. Even if it's inconvenient, even if they're intimidating, even if they're immoral, we should seek out those individuals to minister to them. Because we have behind us the energy of the power of Jesus Christ to, conf to change individuals, to, to just make drastic inroads into their hearts. And we have no doubt, we have the commission by Jesus Christ, get out the word, get out the word, minister to those family members, minister to those neighbors, minister to those co-workers, give them the opportunity for Christ to work in their hearts and see what he can do. You and I 
are supposed to minister to the ungodly around us. What have you been doing? 